Okay, time for questions. Questions on Genesis 2. Yes, go ahead. Okay, so um, I had a interesting conversation with a friend uh, last weekend, and we were talking. To, we were talking about we were talking about Genesis, and she brought up a theory that her pastor spoke of in church. And I want to hear your reaction to it, what you think. But she was talking about how her pastor was saying that in Genesis one. Um, Basically, he was saying that Adam and Eve weren't the only ones created. Weren't the only men, men and woman, man and woman created. That, uh, that in Genesis 1, it speaks to when it says that he created man. And, uh, in Genesis 1, verse 27, he said, when it says God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That that's referring to like a general people. And then in chapter 2, when it says... You know, the cre- you know, in verse 4, um, what my Bible says, the creation of man and woman, it says verse 4, it goes into uh, into how he created Adam and how he created Eve, and that Adam and Eve were like a special chosen couple that he chose to do all these things with, and sensibly in the garden, naming the animals. Okay. Now, d- does evolutionary religion come with that too? Mm, no. Okay. Well, it typically does. The people who don't want Adam and Eve, the question is, when God first created Adam and Eve, did he create just them? Or were there other people who are also in existence and created at that time, whether before or after Adam and the Eve? The truth is, it potentially can. We just we didn't talk about that. Okay. Um, and I asked if evolution was a part of it. Typically, it is a part of it. They want other creatures to be there, and they say that God took a male from one group and a female from another group, brought them together because they were ape men, they, they were half human, half baboon like that. Then they came together, and when they came together and God brought them together, God endowed them with the image of God, those two, and they became the first human pair from pre-existing creatures, ape men creatures. That's typically the way the argument goes. Well, that is not possible. It's not possible for, uh, uh, for various reasons. For example, in Genesis 1 and 2, we already saw Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. That That is described in further detail in chapter 2. And when it is described in chapter 2, the male's name is Adam in 2.20. And the female's name is Eve in 3.20. So those first two were Adam and Eve. They weren't simply, in Genesis 1.27, a description of male and female creatures, and then Adam and Eve are taken from them. That's not the connection. In the text of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they are all connected to the first male and the first female humans. Furthermore... In, in the Bible, when it's talking about the creation of them all, it says, uh, Genesis 5, verse 1, This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Okay. This is the generations of Adam, the book of the generations of Adam. And Adam's descendants are called man. 
Adam and Eve were called man, and then the descendants are called men. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. I say descendants because the rest of the chapter, chapter 5, is about the descendants of Adam. You see the point there? Man is a reference to the, the creation of Adam and Eve and all their descendants. Not any contemporaries of Adam and Eve. Just Adam and Eve and their descendants. Then chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Who are these men who began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them? They are these descendants. Because in chapter 5, it says about Adam and the rest, most of the rest, it says they had sons and daughters or other sons and daughters. One male descendant of each of these patriarchs is named, but they had other sons and daughters. So those are the men and the daughters who multiplied. Okay? Daughters of men, men multiplied, daughters were born to them. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Then the flood occurs, and everyone is destroyed except Noah and his family, right? Everyone, because it's a global flood. Evolutionary religion teaches local flood, local regional flood, but the Bible teaches a global worldwide flood everywhere so that only Noah and his family survive. And they are the only ones who go into the ark, and they're the only ones who leave the ark. For example, it says, Genesis 7, 7, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. They are the only ones who leave the ark. Eight entered and eight leave. Okay? Then chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, 9, 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. The whole earth was populated from these three sons of Noah and their three wives. Genesis chapter 10, the descendants of Noah's sons. Genesis 10, 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. And also, Acts chapter 17. Paul preaches in a foreign place. He's preaching to, to the Greeks in Athens. And he says, Acts 17 and verse 26, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That one verse is a perfect description of what we just read, all those verses of Genesis. Acts, Acts 17, Sorry. verse 26. Acts 17, 26. Um, Follow up question? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so, why we end? So, after we talked about that for a while, and I gave her my opinion for why I think, you know, why I, I said that one was the general, the general um, explaining creation in chapter two was more detailed of Adam and Eve, right? 
Uh, and I said, yeah, and, and I said, on top of this, there's no proof for what you're saying. It's just a theory, mm-hmm. you know? And she said, yeah, well, yeah, I agree. It is a theory. And, uh, but this theory that she learned was something that was preached, right, from a, a pulpit. Like the pastor preached on this theory. And I guess my question is, when is it appropriate to, like, look at the Bible and we see gaps there, maybe things that we just, we don't know where to find things in the Bible to fill the gaps, you know, so you start making, coming up with ideas. And uh, when, it's, uh, when it's appropriate just to, to theorize just for the sake of conversation, and when it's not appropriate, uh, and is it ever appropriate to, from the pulpit to speak theories, preach theories? Okay, you said that your friend acknowledged that it was a theory. And by theory, you mean a speculation. It's not explicitly in the text, right. or it's not even implicitly in the text. You cannot compare one text with another right. text and say, the Bible teaches this. It's not there. Mm-hmm. So when is it appropriate to... To, to, to potentially theorize. Yes. And is it, is it wrong to, to preach something that's theoretical? Is it wrong to preach theory? And by theory, you mean... Speculation. Yes. Is it wrong to speculate? Well, firstly, we have to take warning. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. There are secret, hidden, mysterious things that God hasn't revealed, and they, they belong to Him. That's His secret will. Okay, but then there's also those things He has revealed. What he has revealed are written in the Word of God, in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. So we ought to know what that says, what the Bible does say. Then the next question is, how can I know that what I'm saying about the Bible is real or speculative? Is it real or is it a theory? How can I know? And the answer is, compare the assertion with other parts of the Bible, because the whole Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, say that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. And 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, especially verses 20 and 21, say that men did not write their own interpretation, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the whole Bible being from the Holy Spirit means that it is reliable and non-contradictory. There is harmony. There is a system. One part does not contradict another part. So we should take one part of the Bible and compare it with another part. And the more comparisons we make, the greater the confidence we have that what we believe is true. If the Bible says something one time, we ought to believe it. But if it says it two or three or ten or a hundred times, we have greater certainty that this is indeed what the Bible is teaching us, so we should believe it. That's why, to answer your question, I didn't just go to Genesis 1 and 2. I went to other chapters of the Bible to affirm the same thing that I was reading in Genesis 1 and 2. So if we were to speculate and say, well, in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 27, it's speaking of God creating generally male and female, but not specifically Adam and Eve, If somebody asserts that, then the next question is, well, let's assume for the sake of argument that you are correct. 
Where else does the Bible teach that doctrine? And the answer is nowhere else. The next question, does that doctrine contradict any other part of the Bible that teaches an opposite view, which was the view I just explained from Genesis 1, 2, uh, 3, chapter 5, 9, 10, so forth. When I did that, I actually showed that the Bible is teaching the very opposite. So mine is concrete, mine is real, mine is revealed, and the speculation, the theory that there were other creatures, male and female, generally created, and Adam and Eve were taken from them, that is contrary to the Bible. It's not merely a speculation. It is a destructive speculation because it's contradicting the clear teaching of the Bible. So compare Scripture with Scripture. Isaiah 8.19, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If they don't speak according to this word, they have no dawn, no light, no illumination. It's only darkness that they're spouting. And it, and it would be dangerous for a pastor to preach on these things, right? Like, yes, it, should, it would be dangerous for a pastor to preach it from the pulpit. In fact, the pastor needs to be skilled to do the opposite. He actually needs to be skilled to do the following. It says, Titus 1, verse 9, holding fast, a description of a pastor, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He has to be able to teach clearly and plainly what is true, but also refute those who contradict the truth. Furthermore, he says, verse 13, after describing the false teachers, verse 13, Titus 1.13, This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. They must be sound in the faith, so they must be reproved. They must be confronted, rebuked, so that they not teach false doctrine anymore. And what happens when false doctrine is taught? Titus 1.11 tells us, who must be silenced. This approach that he just mentioned is an obligatory approach. It's a mandatory approach. It's not an approach that if I feel like it, I should do it. He says, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. For the sake of sordid gain. And somebody might say, well, how is teaching evolution sordid gain? Of course it is. Of course it is. Because it's so popular in the culture that you'll have more people who will like you in your church if you preach it. Right. You'll have more people who preach it or like it Preach, so you will have sordid gain. You'll make more money because you'll have more people in your church for teaching evolution or creation and evolution, saying both fit in the Bible and we can have everybody live happily ever after. You know, that's the way that many pastors are. But actually, they should be exhorting and refuting, reproving in order to preserve families from being upset. Okay, next. Well, you already answered part of this, but um, I just—it's surprising to me. You just keep on running into people that, uh, or professors, uh, pastors, so on and so forth, that uh, they give you the clear reading of the text and the reading of the Bible, and it's a, you know, there's a clarity of the scripture, and then they say, "Well, actually," and just start going into 
what we really ought to believe about that, um, which is, you know, the very Roman Catholic to do, you know, you, you know here's, what, here's what the Academy says about this, and so here's what we're supposed to believe. Um, and one of the motivations, obviously, is sort of game. But what are the other reasons that you know of from the scriptures? What, what do the scriptures say? What are the reasons that people do that? That they take the clarity of scripture and then, and then muddle it? Okay. Well, your question people, pastors, professors, they see the clear, evident teaching of the scriptures, and then they say, well, yeah, but then they add something to it, and then they muddle and muddy the waters. Okay, so they make a mess of it. You saw in Titus 1 that it says for sordid gain. That's one reason. Are there other reasons why they might want to do that? Sure. Yes. Yes, they, they love men or they want to please men. They want their favor. And some of this can be connected to money, sordid gain. But sometimes it's just they don't like enemies. They want friends everywhere. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. We all like, to some degree, people, people's attention. We want people to like us. That can be wholesome, but it could also be fatal, right? So when it crosses the line, people will try to accommodate all kinds of viewpoints, even though they are contradictory viewpoints, because they just want more people to like them instead of walking away from them and becoming their enemies. And then slandering them and saying bad things, all kinds of bad things about their character. Um, so there is the... We can say there is fortune, there's fame. Um, we can also say there's fun. That is, the more people you have around you, the more happiness or the more activities, uh, the more um, uh, satisfaction you have because you are around them, they have that they like you you can do things together you're not lonely so you can have fun with them but isn't that whole scenario a scenario where it's completely parasitical and and just like Christ told the Pharisees you're your father the devil and that's and, and you're doing his work because they're corrupting the, the pure and perfect word God and and uh, they ought not to be uh, revered as any kind of minister in the scriptures at all. Yes, well, would that approach, would people who do that be just like the Pharisees? The answer, I, I, I think in Luke 16, is Luke 16, 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. They were lovers of money. So whenever Jesus preached against loving money, they scoffed at him. They hated him because they loved money. But also, we have John chapter 12. John chapter 12, in terms of approval or glory, praise, it says in John 12, 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They love the, the approval, original language, the glory of men, the glory or the praise of men rather than the glory, praise of God. That's why 
They wouldn't confess Christ openly. They didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. That's more with the false prophets who say peace and safety all the time, everything's okay. They have everybody's approval. Okay? Yes, next question. Um, in verse 17, uh, I always wonder, uh, and maybe you can answer or, or maybe not, um, what do you think, you know, the tree was called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, what did that indicate as far as the, the, the precondition of Adam and Eve before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was their condition in regards to the knowledge of good and evil? And what then did they gain, or what did they not have before they ate of the knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? So okay. did they not have knowledge of good and evil? And by eating, their eyes became open to there's good and evil. And if that's the case, can you kind of speak to... Uh, what was then their understanding of God being good okay. before the tree? Okay, in Genesis 2.17, the question, it, it, the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does the knowledge indicate? What knowledge did Adam and Eve have before and after the fall? What did they have? They knew that God was good. He super abundantly applied all their needs. They saw that all around them. He actually said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, right? And he also said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So it's not good for him to be alone, so I'll make it even better for him. He'll have his wife, the woman there. So he provided all of that in a good sense. So he showed himself to be gracious to Adam and Eve. They knew that. I believe they knew that. I also think they knew it would be evil to transgress his command. They knew it would be evil to transgress it because God informed them, you shall surely die. So it would be evil, wrong, disobedience, transgression, iniquity, sin, whatever word we want to call it, for them to transgress that commandment of God. So they knew good and evil in that sense too. They also knew good and evil in the sense that God's making a difference, a dichotomy, good and evil. Just in the naming of the tree, they knew it in that sense. Just as they would have known the difference between a bird and cattle, right? They would have known the difference. There would have been a distinction that they would have known. Adam knew and gave different names to them. So, they knew distinctions, they knew the difference. They knew good and evil. Therefore, that was their condition before the fall. What is it then that they gained acquired after the fall. I think it's the difference between innocence and guilt. Innocence and guilt by the experience of transgression. They had this knowledge of guilt, this evil, that they had done evil, they were evil, they had transgressed God's commandment, and therefore they were culpable. They were guilty and they were culpable. And they knew their culpability because in chapter 3, they hid from the Lord and they sowed fig leaves to hide, uh, to cover their nakedness. And that's the difference between innocence in chapter 224 and guilt in chapter 3. So could you expand on maybe the original meaning of the word knowledge used there? Then would that indicate not just 
an awareness of good and evil, but more of a, an intimate knowing, uh, taking part of, being can, in and apart. Can I comment on the original word knowledge? The original word knowledge, uh, from the root of the verb to know, it is the term knowledge, generally speaking, it's only the context that tells us what we're talking about. It's not the actual uh, basic lexical or dictionary meaning of the word that's going to tell us what they did know or didn't know. It would be the context that specifies the content of their knowledge. For example, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says literally, using the same root, in the, and this the time the verbal form, chapter 4, verse 1, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, so forth. New American Standard Bible says had relations. The Hebrew word is knew. And K King James Version says the man knew his wife. So the content of that knowledge, that knowledge was sexual relations. It's not 10 plus, or 10 plus 10 is 20. Not that kind of knowledge. The context tells us what the knowledge is. So that's why in 2, 16 and 17, this knowledge of the tree of good and evil is, according to this context, I think the difference between innocence, guilt, and its culpability. So they had an understanding of what evil was before the fall, so that they knew that they should stay away from it, and they were, there, was, there wasn't a lack of understanding of what they were getting into. They knew full well what God had commanded them to do, and the repercussions of what would come about if they did it, but as far as their experience, experientially they had not transgressed before, but then they gained a knowledge by actually becoming transgressors and receiving the due penalty because of their sin? Yes, yes. They, they, became, they became actual transgressors. They understood their guilt. They had knowledge of their guilt and knowledge of the punishment for that guilt. Yes? So, um, then, like, that makes sense, but then... Like with Genesis three twenty two, when God says, "Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil." So God is not culpable, evil. He cannot be tempted, even tempting one. He's not So how? What is what is God saying there then when He says that man has become like one of us, like us? I mean, yes. You know. Okay, we have to understand verses like this, and there are many verses like this in a. In terms of what God's teaching us about Himself in our relationship to Him, um, anthropomorphic terminology, phraseology and metaphors, similes, figures of speech, riddles, poetry, however God communicates something about Himself. Okay? Now, has become like one of us knowing good and evil. God did not at any point learn evil. If he had learned anything, then God would be a changing God. But Malachi 3, 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Right? And his understanding is inscrutable. Isaiah uh, 40, 27 to 31. He, so there's nothing that he acquires. So God already, because he is the eternal God, he already knew whatever that means in terms of the post-fall experience of man, 
He already knew all that. Right. So he, so and that, and so that there is a distinction there of he. I mean, maybe is it like he knows the effects of evil, or like he knows, um, since he knows the future, you know, he's ordained it all. He knows that's how he knows evil because he knows all the effects. He knows everything about it, whereas, I mean, I don't know, I guess, I'm still, I'm still trying to understand it in his mind. Yes, um, you're still trying to figure out, yeah. what does he know? Yes, you have an answer? Would it be, this is the way I'm trying to put, put it in my mind, the, the experiential knowledge of good and evil is different than the knowledge of good and evil, and one example of that would be, uh, as a man, young man growing up, we all know that sex outside of marriage is evil, and we know that, but it's not until a man does that that then they do feel the guilt, and they experience the knowledge of the evil of it. Um, would that be similar to what we're talking about here? Because you can, you can tell somebody all up and down, you know, this is evil, this is evil, but it's not until they actually do it that they feel then the guilt and the weight Yes. Yes. It's not until they actually do it that they feel the guilt and they know that they deserve the punishment for that guilt. And I don't I think that you can't almost can't fully comprehend the innocence until you experience the guilt in a way that you you, you do understand it, but you, you really understand. You can look back and say, Wow, I was innocent and now I have ruined that. Now I've experienced the guilt yes. of evil. Don't know what you got till it's gone. And it's like, wow, yes. now that makes so much more sense to me. But before then... But that's because we're finite. Right? right. But God is not finite, so... This is something I've thought about for a long time. And I, want, I want to hear from you because you're the, you're the ancient Semitic language scholar, okay? So in, in the flexibility of the term, no. Okay? You've already demonstrated. The, the theory that I've... Uh, have read and, and studied is, um, is, is the idea that the knowledge of the good and evil is the kind of knowledge where one is um, self-determining what that means for themselves. Like, to know good and evil meaning I define what is good, I define what is evil. And in this way, because Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, they were redefining the terms for themselves. They were, you know, God is good, Disobedience is bad. We have that conceptual framework, but now, because the Satan's serpent tempted them, they say, "We are going to redefine good." I look at the fruit; it is good for food. It's pleasing. I like it. So, therefore, I'm going to determine that eating the fruit is good, even though God has determined that it's bad. And I'm going to determine that God is bad because He's keeping me from advancing to be like Him, as per the temptation of the serpent. So, I'm going to self-determine for my what good and evil are for me. And this is why there can be no fellowship. There must be exile. Adam and Eve must be cast out of the garden because they're in rebellion to God. They have become like God in the sense that they are determining good and evil for themselves and thus they can have no fellowship with Him anymore because they're not submitted to Him. They're, they are not um, in agreement with Him anymore. Therefore, they have become like God in this sense, autonomy. They have become self- Directing. 
And therefore, because they become like God in that sense, in a very uh, evil sense, that they are now they're cast out. Is that so? I've, I've thought about that for a while. But I, is that conceptually <coughs> within the language that we have in the scripture something okay. we can say? Okay. In terms of words, words have meanings in contrast to other words. We know the difference between a chair and a lion. But then there are different kinds of chairs, there are different kinds of lions. We specify according to context. That's the same with this word knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. We have to define it according to the way the phrase is used, not according to its lexical meaning as a distinct word from other words. Okay? So according to the contextual usage, what you just explained about how Adam and Eve have now this definition and this independence, this insubordination in redefining what's good and evil and doing it according to their whim instead of the wisdom of God, that is happening here. So that is an element of what they have come to know. Because in the moment of sin, before we are guilty and condemned, we have to convince ourselves that what God just said is evil and what we want is good. But when we're guilty, then we, then we realize, oh, I was wrong. For that moment or that 10 minutes or that five hours, whatever, however long it was, I thought I was happy and I thought it was good, but it was actually evil, just as God had already said it was. Every time sin happens, that's what's going on. Yes? In the context of Genesis 2 and 3, you made a strong case that uh, 16 and 17 is a covenant in and of itself, and that's the reference to the covenant of works. Uh, you then spoke a little bit uh, and produced reference of Romans 5 and said that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. Um, does this chapter, or even linguistically, does it support that? The work that Christ did on the cross was fulfilling this covenant? Was it fulfilling a greater covenant? Was it fulfilling something other than the Adamic covenant of works? What exactly did Christ do on the cross to move us from Adam into Christ? Is there an element of the covenant of works that Christ fulfilled, or is there something more expansive? Yes, well, what Adam could not do, did not do, Christ did do, in his active obedience, known as his active obedience. Throughout his life, he lived sinlessly, perfect life. That's his active obedience. Adam did not live sinlessly throughout his life. So he did not fulfill active obedience. And if he fell on the sixth day, then that means that he could barely keep up with it for any length of time, his active obedience. He could not, but Christ did do that. That's why the Bible says he was tempted in all points uh, as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15, or 1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Those are the statements intending to show us that Christ did throughout his whole life completely and fully obey God. But then the punishment... For the disobedience is death, and that punishment was paid for by Christ's 
death himself, his own death. Though he did not deserve to die, he did die. So if he died, he died not for his sins, he died as a substitute for our sins if we believe in him. And that death on the cross is his passive obedience. His passive obedience, he took upon himself our curse. He became a curse for us. The curse, uh, it seems like the Bible seems to go back to language of covenant, which means an active obedience, curse, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. So, is there a idea then of covenant that Christ fulfilled, or is it just the active obedience, that principle that is, is referenced in, 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 in covenants? Did he fulfill something in particular, or was it that more generic sense of active obedience? Well, in this covenant, in the Garden of Eden, they broke basically love of God and love of neighbor, yeah. the two greatest commandments, which are further explained in the Ten Commandments. They've, they disobeyed the first part of the Ten Commandments, and they also broke the second part of the Ten Commandments. The first table of the law, the first four commandments, and then the last six, known as the second table of the law, they disobeyed those parts as well. So they shattered and broke the Ten Commandments. But Jesus did the opposite. He fulfilled the moral law, as it's known. The moral law embodied in the Ten Commandments. So in other words, shortly that ends, he, yes, he did keep the covenant words. He did keep it perfectly. Yes, he did keep it perfectly. That's why, I mean, that's why he's the fulfillment uh, of all those covenants, Abrahamic and Davidic. I mean, he... Um, he, he acquires the blessing of those covenants for us. Yes. In Galatians 3, he became a curse, implying that he also was living perfectly. Yes. You know, to give us those blessings. Yes. So if he became a curse, then he would be taking on the curses of all those individual covenants in order to give us the blessings of those individual covenants? Yes. He took on the curse. And in Galatians 3, the covenant there he has in mind is the law of Moses, which is a further manifestation and a literary form or literary um, uh, source for these works. Whoever keeps the whole law, right, shall live. Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book of the law. But Jesus became a curse for us because the law of Moses is just like the covenant of works. Isn't that what it says in Leviticus 18.5? Leviticus 18.5 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. By which a man may live if he does them. Jesus actually cites this in Luke 10. Remember, there was a lawyer, a self-righteous lawyer, who approached him. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then the answer is, love God and love your neighbor. Then Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Luke 10, 28. Do this and you will live. Quoting Leviticus 18, 5. But he knew that the lawyer wouldn't do that. And the lawyer had not done that. But he put the standard out there 
on purpose because the standard is put out there to show that we cannot keep it so that we put our faith in Christ. And then you know, in the Psalms, you have multiple Psalms that talk about being blessed, like God, all the paths of the world and kindness to those who keep his covenant. You have all these, these multiple blessings for those who keep the covenant, but that is, so that's what Christ did for us. He kept the covenant so that we can have those, those blessings. I mean, because obviously, Yes. Yes, the blessings for those who keep the covenant in the Psalms is is presented, but we're not able to do it. Therefore we need Christ to do it for us and to change us. And we do that by faith and repentance. Yes. And even in the Psalms, by faith and repentance. How blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Right? Because it's in Psalm twenty five he says you know, for those who keep this covenant, but then right after that he says, pardon my iniquity for the break. So, obviously it's not him trusting in his own ability to keep that covenant. Right. Brother, real quick, I know we're out of time. <clears throat> Positional sanctification is according to the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We know that. Yeah. But practical sanctification, you know, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. They that love me shall keep my commandments. <clears throat> Even though we understand that positionally we're perfectly righteous according to Christ's righteousness given to us. <clears throat> but Christians are responsible to obey the commands of God, even though we know that we cannot do it to perfection. Christ has done that for us, praise the Lord. Um, yet some will say that it is absolutely impossible uh, in and of ourselves to obey God's law perfectly. So how can we live holy if... That, that's not what I believe. I, I believe we, we keep God's commandments to honor the Lord, not to merit salvation. Salvation has already been granted us through Christ and all his work, his atoning work, his his perfect uh, righteousness, but some would argue that, yeah, Rick, you can try to keep the commandments, but you're going to fall short in some way, to some degree, uh, in all your attempts to keep, you know, uh, the commandments of God. And of course, people get really confused there, because so many people think that obedience, you know, work salvation is, is the key to, you know, heaven and reconciliation with the Lord. We know contrary. Um, so when somebody comes to you and say, yeah, you talk about obeying God's commands and, you know, follow peace with all men and holiness, but in and of yourself, you cannot obey God's command or be holy, uh, practically speaking, on this side of eternity, you know, to a T. So what's, what's the point? What's the purpose of it if you know that you're always going to fall short? Okay, your question, we, we know that we are positionally in Christ, we are justified, and we have holiness, His holiness, or His righteousness reckoned to our account. But then you hear people say that we can't follow Christ perfectly, so what's the point? Yeah. They say, you can't follow Him perfectly, so what's the point? And the point that they're making is, so why, why do you try? Why are you doing anything? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we have to do it, for a couple of reasons. One, God commands it. Yes. And number two, 
because if we don't display it, we show ourselves to be unbelievers. If it's not manifest in our life, then we show ourselves to actually be unbelievers and false brothers. Okay, first, the command. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. We know 8 and 9 teaches us by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. 4, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are for us who are in Christ. He says, they are, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work. We are created to perform good works. And by the way, good works is not just uh, g- giving $10 to a bum on the street, okay? And, and it's not going in, in, to the soup kitchen and things like that and going to um, Africa and digging a well for somebody. In and of themselves, I'm not talking about that, but people think, if they do enough of those kinds of good works, then they will have the favor of God and they'll get to heaven. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about that part. That's wrong. Then Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it, but work it out. Display it. Manifest it. Show evidence, fruit in your life. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God not only worked to save us, He's working now to keep us in the faith, sanctifying us. He is working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Then we have um, Hebrews 13 the benediction of Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. I'll pick it up at verse 21. May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Bible, contrary to your friend or antagonist who says, we can't keep it, so what's the point? The Bible says we ought to strive to keep it. Even if we cannot attain to perfection, which is true, we cannot, We still ought to strive because we're constantly supposed to bear fruit. And God is continuing to work in us, granting us power to live for Him. And then lastly, the fruit. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Why does Paul say that in 2 Corinthians 13, 5? And do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? So how are we going to examine ourselves but by the Scriptures? The deeds of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. We have to do that to know and have confidence and assure ourselves of our salvation and assure our loved ones that we are saved by manifestation of good works. Good deeds, according to the way the Bible describes good deeds. All right? Okay. And so a, a believer can then be identified as a righteous righteous man or a righteous woman in this life in contrast to unbelievers. Not a perfect man, but there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked in this life. Okay, and then can a believer be described as righteous in this life? Yes, for two reasons. One, because God has declared him righteous in Christ. And number two, because God is working in his life because he's producing the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the deeds of the flesh. So he is righteous in that sense as well. 
But he's not righteous in a perfect sense, in the sense of Christ is. That will happen when we meet Christ face to face. And why do we say that? There are many examples in the Bible um, where the, the Bible calls the, the believer righteous or godly. Notice Psalm 86, verse 2. 86, 2. Do preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. And you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. I am a godly man. He calls himself. And we may too. We're called saints. We may call ourselves saints. Not just for special saints or sainted saints, as the Catholic Church does. That concept is not in the Bible. We're, we're all saints or holy ones, as saints means. We're holy ones because we're in Christ and he is working in us even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that it shows us about you and our redemption. We pray that you'll firm up our faith, give us stability, and help us to be bold in, in the preaching of the gospel. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is true. In Christ, amen.